John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26, and we'll be considering the idea of the cursus honorum. John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. Give attention to God's holy word. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day of joy and gladness and of fellowship and of feasting, not only upon the fruits of the earth, but also upon the fruits of your word. We ask now, O Lord, that you would bless us by your spirit, giving us energy and attention to attend to the things you have revealed to us in your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the cursus honorum is a Latin phrase, and as a former Latin teacher, I like to throw it out there whenever I can. The cursus honorum, it simply means the course or the pathway of honor. This referred to in the Roman Empire, there was a certain series of uh, education and public offices you had to hold to receive public honor. And in the old Roman system, if you wanted to be honored as a public man, you had to go through these specific order of offices, starting with a tribune, moving up to a praetor and a quaetor, and finally being a consul. And if you went through that course, you would receive the public honor of a public man. This involved a certain pattern of education. This involved a certain pattern of service in the public sphere of Rome. That was the Roman model of receiving public honors, but in our day, we have the same kind of system in place. If you want to be honored, if you want to be an honorable person, it's assumed in our society you either have to go to Harvard or Princeton, you have to get a certain kind of education, and then you've got to serve as a senator's uh, clerk or assistant then maybe one day you can be a city councilor, then you could be a state representative, then you could be a senator. Maybe one day you can be president. That pattern of thinking is the cursus honorum. That's the way politics works. Now, the reason it's important to point this out is because sometimes in the church, we can adopt this kind of thinking in the church and who should be honored in the church or how people are honored in the church. It might be tempting to think that if he went to a certain seminary and he got this certain type of education and he served at a certain church under a certain pastor in his internship, he got his book published with a certain book publisher and he spoke at this certain conference, we might think that they're worthy of more honor. 
It can be tempting in your position as well as the flock of the Lord's pasture, thinking that uh, I'm not worthy of honor because I don't have the seminary degree. I've never written a book. I've never spoken at a conference. I've never done all of these things that we think make up the cursus honorum. However, in this passage, we find that God the Father has a different way of honoring his people. God the Father has a different criteria for those that he honors and glorifies in his Son. And what we find specifically in this passage, it's not those who seek the Lord Jesus Christ, but those who serve the Lord Jesus Christ that the Father honors. Not those who seek the Lord Jesus Christ alone, but those who serve the Lord Jesus Christ are the ones that God honors. We're just going to see two things in this very short passage. Verses, uh, verse 20 through 22 is seeking Jesus. Verse 23 through 26, serving Jesus. Verses 20 through 22, seeking Jesus. Verse 23 through 26, serving Jesus. And so we come now to verse 20 and seeking the Lord Jesus. Remember the context? It's very important, especially in this part of John's gospel and all the gospel accounts. John has repeated this several times in chapter 12. Certain Greeks came to worship at the feast. This is the Passover feast. This is the high feast of Israel's religious life. So all the Jews from across the world would come into Jerusalem to worship at this feast. Remember also what providentially we just read out of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I assure you I didn't plan it this way. But we read about the Lord's estate of humiliation. And part of our Lord's humiliation is that he was born, humbled, and suffered on the cross. We are in the realm of the cross. We're in the narthex of the crucifixion, so to speak. We're in the waiting room, the lobby of Christ going to the cross. That's the setting that we have here. And as we move further into this passage, notice in verse 20, John tells us there were certain Greeks who came, uh, among those who came to worship at the feast. Now, there's a question about who these Greeks are. These could be your ordinary, run-of-the-mill Greeks. They're, they're from Greece. They're pagan, maybe like the Athenian philosophers. They don't really worship any god fully. They have all kinds of devotion and then an unknown god, and they may be going to Jerusalem to see what the Jews are up to. These could just be ordinary Greeks. Or these could be Greek-speaking Jews. In the first century, there was a difference between an Aramaic or Hebrew-speaking Jew and Greek-speaking Jews. Paul and Timothy came from the Greek-speaking world of Judaism. Paul was born in Tarsus. Timothy's father was a Greek. And so they would have come from the Roman world. They spoke Greek, but they were adherents of the Jewish religion. It could be those kind of Jews that John is referring to here. I think for our purposes, it doesn't matter so much if we say it's Greek-speaking Jews, 
or ordinary Greek pagans. The point is that with the Passover feast, people from all over the world are coming to Jerusalem. These people are from outside of Palestine. They don't live in the promised land. They live outside of the promised land. That's why they speak Greek. That's why they're called Greeks. So now, get a picture of what's going on here. The Passover feast is happening. Jerusalem is teeming with Jews from all over Palestine, and it's teeming with Jews from all over the Roman Empire. Greeks, Italians, Spaniards, people from North Africa, people from Babylon, all over the world, everybody is streaming up into Jerusalem. This should remind you of some of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah writes a prophecy about Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah 2 verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. And John records for us in chapter 12 that Greeks came to worship at the feast and said, sir, we would see Jesus. I think John sees a partial fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 2 in these Greeks coming up to the feast, and they're not only coming for the Passover, they recognize Jesus is something special. We want to see Jesus. Now, probably what they're doing is they're coming to see Jesus because he's a great teacher. All throughout the Gospels, people remark in the Sermon on the Mount and other passages, Christ taught as somebody with authority. He did not teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. Earlier on in John's Gospel, we read that the guards who were sent from the Pharisees to arrest Jesus in John chapter 9, when they came back to the Pharisees, they said, why haven't you arrested him? And the guards said, nobody ever spoke like this man. Christ's teaching ministry and preaching ministry was something these people had never seen or heard before. The Greeks are probably gathering. They want to hear this amazing teacher. They want to hear what wisdom he has to tell them. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Greeks look for wisdom. The Gentile mindset, and probably these Jews who are cultural Greeks, that's who I think it is, it's, it's Jews who are culturally Greek. They're influenced by the Greek culture. And the Greek culture is looking for philosophy and for wisdom. And so they're coming up to Jerusalem. They want to learn from Jesus as the teacher. They are seeking Jesus. And we return to John chapter 12. Then they come and tell Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. couple of comments at this point, just to sort of tie a couple of things together that I've already done. In referring to Isaiah chapter 2, it may seem like I'm pulling something together that doesn't quite fit. 
If you keep reading in John chapter 12, especially verse 37, 38, and continuing on, verse 41 especially, John writes, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. I think the book of Isaiah, John has it in mind at this point as he's writing the gospel. He's following the themes of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, the nations are coming up to the mountain of the Lord's house. Later on in chapter 12, he quotes Isaiah 6. That's when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord and said these things about him. So I think Isaiah is in the background of what's happening in this passage. Secondly, these Greeks, I think, are coming to, to learn of Christ's wisdom, but they're coming for the wrong reason. Look at what it will say in verse 23. But Jesus answered them. Whatever these Greeks wanted out of Jesus, Jesus answers them in a way they weren't expecting. It says, but Jesus answered them. He answered them contrary to their expectations. And so these Greeks are coming more than likely to learn from Jesus as a great religious teacher. Now, there are many who seek Jesus in this way. There are many who follow after Christ because they say he has eternal wisdom. He does have eternal wisdom. Paul will say in the book of Colossians, all the... um, All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are contained in God the Father and God the Son. He's the source of all truth and of all wisdom. But you see, the thing that we need as sinners, and really the one that God honors, is not the one who learns from Jesus. It's not the one who has the most wisdom and insight. It's not the one who has the most education. That is not the one that God honors. These Greeks come seeking that, but that's not sufficient. Likewise, not only in church history, but in your personal lives, as you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in the Reformed faith. You know, we in the Reformed faith might be called the Greeks of the American church. We seek after wisdom, don't we? We want to know more about systematic theology. We want to know more about the eternal decree and the wisdom of how things fit together. There's a place for that. I love that kind of stuff. Theology is uh, part of the, the, the duty of the minister and the duty of all Christians to know and understand. But you see, sometimes our mistake can be that if if we want a closer walk with Christ, if we want to receive the reward of glory, we have to learn more theology. We have to learn more wisdom about Christ. We have to learn more philosophy about the Trinity and all these deep and profound truths. It's a real temptation for us as Reformed Christians. We place a high emphasis on educated ministers. We place a high emphasis on big, fat ministerial libraries. We place a high emphasis on the number of volumes a systematic theology runs into. John Calvin's is two volumes. Herman Boving's is four volumes. Does that mean it's better? Sometimes we can think that way. I want to encourage you at this point, you should be learning theology as much as you can, but learning theology and seeking Christ in this way is not the way to be honored by God the Father. It is not your responsibility to understand wisdom and theology the way your pastor does, the way your elders do, maybe even the way your own father does. That's not your job. Your job is to serve Christ.
Your job is to follow his example. Look at what it now goes to. They say, sir, we wish to see Jesus, and they came and told Jesus about this, uh, Philip and Andrew. They probably go to Philip, by the way, this is just an aside, says he was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Philip, Galilee was a mixed place. There were Hebraic Jews like Peter, but there was also a lot of Gentile influence in Galilee as well. Philip was probably one of these guys who was more comfortable with these culturally Greek uh, Jews, and so they went to him first. They, They found him to be approachable. You know, a funny anecdote about this, just as an aside. My, my father-in-law is a godly man, love him to death. He's a ruling elder in the church. He had a checkered background, though. And so part of his background, he was in the Navy, and he's got some tattoos on his arms. And sometimes people with this kind of background, they can be a little bit more approachable to other types. Because he's got that bit of a background, he's got some tattoos on his arm, He speaks the language of Galilee, and people can approach him and talk to him. Probably what's going on here with Philip. He's from Galilee. He understands how it works around these Gentiles. He's not off-putting. Even though I said this as an aside, there's some useful wisdom here for you in the church, especially when visitors come in. Don't feel like Every single person who comes into the church has to be greeted by every single other person in the church. Some people will hit it off with individuals better than others. Some people just jive a little bit better. Philip can talk to these Greeks probably better than Peter can. We know in other passages, Peter was a bit of a stiff, rigid, self-righteous Jew. Probably not the guy you want these guys talking to. But Philip is able to talk to him and bring him to Jesus. That's okay. That's how the Lord set his church up. So don't feel bad about that, but embrace it. So they come to Jesus. They tell him this. Jesus then answers them and says, it's not enough to seek me. It's it's not enough to come looking for my teaching. It's not enough to listen to my doctrine. You must serve me. And he teaches them that the way we serve Christ is by following the example of Christ. Christ then begins his lesson by saying this, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Again, I think in our Lord's mind and in the way John writes this gospel, Isaiah 2 is right at the front of their minds. The fact that these Greeks are coming up and they're seeking Jesus on the mountain of the Lord's house at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is an indication that the last days are here. The hour has now come that the Son of Man should be glorified. But notice his glorification is not in the way the world thinks. You see, you know, his brother said this earlier in the gospel. The way the world thinks about glorification is that if Jesus is the teacher and he's come to reign, you need to have a TED Talk. You need to start a YouTube channel. You need to put yourself out there and self-promote so people can hear you and they can follow you. Christ doesn't do that. He understands glorification and receiving the Father's honor doesn't happen in that way. It doesn't happen in the way of self-promotion. It actually happens in the way of self-denial. And that's the example that Christ gives them here. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Christ uses this metaphor to illustrate what he's about to do. He's illustrating his death on the cross. You see, if the Son of Man is going to be glorified, it's going to happen in the same way that a grain of wheat is glorified, as it were. You know, it's funny, I, uh, I don't remember where I saw this, it's in a sitcom, but it's an old gag about uh, maybe your son or daughter, they go to their, their job and they get their first paycheck. And, they, and you get the first paycheck and like, oh wow, I'm so proud of you. Let's put your, this first paycheck, let's put it in a picture frame and hang it on the wall. That's one way to glorify a paycheck. But it's contrary to the nature of the paycheck, right? A paycheck is meant to be cashed and spent and multiplied. Likewise, what Christ is saying is that you could, I could be glorified by being put up on a billboard and put inside a picture frame and never dying. But if I don't die, other grain doesn't come up. My work, my spirit, my salvation... My union with the Father isn't multiplied the way a seed of grain is multiplied. And so I have to die. The way that the Son of Man is going to be glorified is through his death, through his self-denial. So he, he first describes his own death on the cross, and now he's going to apply that example to us. Now he starts to apply it. He says, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is the application from Christ's own internal thought process. You see, the reason Christ was able to go to the cross, one of the reasons, is that as he thought about himself and his own life, he did not love his life. He did not love the fact that he was alive. He did not value his own life above obedience to the Father. In fact, he hated his life in this world. And it's because he hated his life in this world that he retains it for eternal life. Now, this is another example. You see this other places in the Gospels. For instance... Christ will say, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Another way of saying that is if you don't hate your father and your mother, you cannot be my disciple. He's using exaggeration here. He's not saying you literally have to hate your father and mother. He's not saying here you have to be suicidal to retain your life for eternal life. But he's saying the degree of commitment... The degree of commitment to God's ways has to be such that it looks like you hate yourself. You are so interested in serving God. The one that hates his life in this world will retain it for eternal life. This is the pattern of self-denial. Christ says this in several other places in the Gospels. He who would follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Paul says time and again about himself, I am poured out as a drink offering. He says, I would gladly spend and be, set, be spent upon your sacrifice of faith. John Calvin, very eloquently, if you want to learn more about self-denial, you should look at his systematic theology, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. 
especially what he says about prayer. One of the things you find in Calvin's writings is he talks constantly about self-denial, that the only way to advance in the Christian life is by denying ourselves, by denying the things that we want, by denying our own pleasures, our own wants, and our own desires, by, as Christ says, hating our life in this world. Now, I want to be a little practical here because we're, the the way Christ teaches this and the way he explains it, this is, you know, prophetically black and white. He, He sets the bar as high as his own ability. But we can boil this down and make it very practical to how to cultivate this mindset in your life. When you wake up in the morning, In order to consistently read the Bible, you have to deny yourself. You may have to practice denial of sleep. You may have to practice denial of ease. You may have to practice denial of surfing the internet. You may have to practice self-denial in order to read the Word of God consistently. Likewise, prayer. As you go through the Christian life, you will find there are seasons when you ought to be praying, but your heart wants to be playing a game, wants to be watching TV, wants to be sitting down and chatting. Your heart wants to do something else when you ought to be praying. That's where self-denial comes into play, denying my desires in order to do the will of God. Hating my life in this world so that I might obtain eternal life. Now notice this this dynamic I'm describing to you is really the, the warp and woof of Christian piety. You have to learn how to deny yourself. You cannot serve God and retain the things that you want in this life. Christ says it right here. He who loves his life will lose it. But he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And so this pattern of self-denial is what Christ exemplifies on the cross. He says this is what must be exemplified in those who serve him. He goes on and talks about this. He says, if anyone serves me, then let him follow me. Let him follow what? My teachings? Not only my teachings, but my example. When Christ says to follow me, he's talking about his pattern of life, following his example and walking the way that he walked. How did Christ walk? He laid down his life. He denied himself. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor And now Christ brings it to a conclusion and tells us, this is the course of honors in the Christian life. The one whom God the Father honors is the one who serves Christ. And the one who serves Christ will be where Christ is, and the one who serves Christ is the one that God the Father will honor. Now, a couple of things to bring out of this to encourage your hearts and to strengthen your faith. First, honor in the Christian life is something we should seek. You should seek the honor of God the Father. 
That should be your whole motivation for what you do. I want to, as it says in other passages, when I arrive in my Father's presence, hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear him pat my soul on the back and say, attaboy, I'm proud of you. You should seek the Father's approval and seek his honor. Secondly, notice the honor of the Father is often secret and hidden from the, uh, from the observation of men. This is why Christ says, he who serves me will be where I am. Where is Christ right now? He's in the heavenly places at the right hand of God the Father. None of you can see him. But we know he's there by faith. He's hidden from our sight, as it were. And Christ says, the one who serves me will be where I am. He will be with me in the secret place by faith, and God the Father will honor him, the one that serves me. So first off, you should seek the Father's honor. There should be a motivation in your life. Secondly, remember the one that God the Father honors often doesn't do it publicly. He often doesn't do it outwardly. He does it secretly, and you enjoy it by faith. And then finally, the the last practical application here. Let me say it this way. The way that Paul the Apostle said it. If you have all wisdom and can understand all mysteries, God will not honor you. If you have all faith that you could move mountains, God the Father doesn't honor that. If you have all the, the, the charity and you give away all of your money to the poor, God even will not honor that if you don't have love. 1 Corinthians 13. That's what Christ is describing here. This self-denial is loving others better than yourself. And for you, in whatever position that you're in, if you love God and love His people with whatever resources you have, self-denial in serving others for the glory of Christ, God the Father will honor you. Doesn't matter if your prayers are eloquent. Doesn't matter if your pockets are bottomless. Doesn't matter if your intellect is astounding, dizzying even. If you do it with love, God the Father will honor you, even as he honored the Lord Jesus Christ. In conclusion, I just want to point your attention to Philippians chapter 2, where Paul takes this idea and uses it, applies this concept to us and to the church. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others as better than himself. You see how the ethic of the Christian is opposite to the ethic of the world, not in selfish ambition, but in lowliness. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even 
the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we learn from this passage is that the pathway of honor is self-sacrifice, just as the Lord Jesus sacrificed himself. And that when God the Father honors his servants, it is nothing less than resurrection from the dead, even as it was in the life of Christ. So if you want the honor of God, which is the only honor that matters, pour yourself out in his service, and God the Father will honor you for your sacrifice. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for your encouragements to us through the Lord Jesus. We pray you would help us each day to take up our cross and to follow you. We pray you would help us to not love our lives in this world, but to hate our lives in this world, knowing that our true life is hidden with Christ in God and that we might enjoy his life even now. We pray you would strengthen our faith and help us to serve you even as Christ served us by laying down his life. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.